to another episode of the Unlearning Podcast. My name is Ashley Lynn Hangst, and I am your host, your guide, your biggest cheerleader on your unlearning journey. As you deconstruct and grow to love Jesus and your neighbor through healthy, life-giving theology. Last week, we began a four-part series on healthy Christian sexual ethics, and so I'm excited to share with you part two. This series is on moral and Christian theological reasoning around sex and intimacy, and the information in this series is based off the writings of Catholic feminist theologian Margaret Farley and Black feminist Bell Hooks. If you haven't heard part one, I would highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen to part one before you check out this episode. And you'll want to listen all the way through each of these episodes to get the full picture of what healthy Christian sexual ethics looks like. With each episode, I begin with the works of Farley and Bell Hooks, and then I filter it through the evangelical purity culture. This series has the power to change how you think about sex, relationships, and yourself. My prayer is that it is just that, that each episode that God uses it to help you deconstruct and diminish the awful shame around sex and intimacy that we inherited from our evangelical culture. And so that is my prayer this entire month. I hope that this is really helping you and giving you lots of food for thought. In the first episode of the Healthy Christian Sexual Ethics series, we talked about what bell hooks and Margaret Farley consider as just sex, sexual intimacy rooted in justice. Bell Hooks asserts that there can be no love without justice. And so in order to love and live justice out in sexual intimacy, it is important that we affirm people according to their concrete reality, according to their needs, capacities, relational claims, vulnerabilities, and possibilities. A person's concrete reality is rooted in both their autonomy and their relationality. When we intentionally respect a person's autonomy, when we respect a person's right to decide for themselves who they are and what they want in a relationship, that is a relationship rooted in justice. And when we intentionally respect how our lover is relating to us and how they are relating to others, we are understanding the other person as a whole human, complete in and of themselves. They are not an object to be selfishly used. Our lover will not complete us. We are not there to complete them. The person we love is whole in and of themselves. When we practice love rooted in justice, we are expressing a healthy Christian sexual ethic. Now, I don't want to recap the entire first episode. I just wanted to bring those things to your attention as we build upon this framework into Farley's seven norms for just sex. Before we begin with Margaret Farley's seven norms, I want to talk to you about self-love. Because we cannot be ethical to other people if we are not first ethical with ourselves. We cannot love other people in a healthy, life-giving way if we do not see and love ourselves in a healthy, life-giving way. And so how do we do that? How do we love ourselves this way? Listen to Bell Hooks as she describes self-love. And I quote, One of the best guides to how to be self-loving is to give ourselves the love 
we are often dreaming about receiving from others. There was a time when I felt lousy about my over 40 body, saw myself as too fat, too this or too that. Yet I fantasized about finding a lover who would give me the gift of being loved as I am. It is silly, isn't it, that I would dream of someone else offering to me the acceptance and affirmation I was withholding from myself. This was a moment when the maxim, you can never love anybody if you are unable to love yourself, made clear sense. And I add, do not expect to receive the love from someone else you do not give yourself. End quote. That is a powerful statement. It is silly that we would dream of someone else offering to us the acceptance and affirmation we withhold from ourselves. We cannot look to others to complete us. We cannot wrap our value around other people. We cannot expect to receive the love from someone else that we are so unwilling to give ourselves. So as I go through Margaret Farley's seven norms of sexual ethics, I want you to consider how are you applying them to yourself? First, this is important because Bell Hooks stated we cannot expect to receive the love that we will not give ourselves. But it's also important because we are able to love others well because we have experienced it ourselves over and over again, day in, day out. By the way, if you want to check out Farley's work on your own, you can purchase her book, Just Love, a framework for Christian sexual ethics. Her book is super dense and reads very much like an academic textbook, but for some of you, you're going to love it. For the rest of us, I am producing this four-part series, and this series will give you an overview of what Farley outlines in chapter six, and I will help you unpack it with experiences that we are that are very common in the evangelical purity culture. Before Marley, Margaret Farley begins, she makes these few disclaimers. In her book, Farley explains that these seven norms are not merely ideals, they are bottom line requirements. These norms are not recommendations, they are the basic bottom of the line requirements for a healthy sexual relationship. Farley also believes that justice can be experienced on a spectrum. She states that, and I quote, while minimum justice is always required, maximum justice can go beyond this to what is fitting to the person and situation, end quote. This minimum maximum justice will make more sense as we go along. But for now, just remember this, these seven norms are the bare minimum requirement for an ethical sexual relationship. In other words, this is the bottom line and you cannot do less than this. The first norm of healthy, just Christian sexual ethics, according to Margaret Farley, is this. Do no unjust harm. Do no unjust harm. Why unjust? Farley explains that we do harm to people we are romantically involved with when we when the harm is necessary to bring about a greater good. Think of moments when you've had to tell the truth and it caused your partner's sadness. This is, according to Farley, just harm. When you're going in for surgery, you have to be cut open in order to get a disease out. That is just harm. Sometimes truth-telling in relationships is just like that. 
And so her first norm for Christian sexual ethics is do no unjust harm. When we do unjust harm, we violate a person's autonomy and treat them as a means to an end. Unjust harm can be done both physically, psychologically, spiritually, and relationally. Farley explains that harm can also take the form, this is a direct quote from her, the form of a failure to support, to assist, to care for, and to honor our lovers. She also includes in this list all forms of violence, sexual harassment, and pedophilia. Now, obviously, doing no unjust harm is important, but it does not go far enough. It is very bottom-of-the-line behavior. But it's important to ask yourself in your own thinking and in your own behavior, are you doing no unjust harm to yourself? Are you feeding your mind with thoughts of self-hatred? Are you are you hurting yourself through drug and alcohol abuse? Are we being ethical with ourselves? As we seek to be people transformed by grace, transformed by love, even romantic love, evolving continually and imperfectly into the image of Christ, we need to go much further than simply doing no unjust harm. We need to pursue our own flourishing, and we need to be part of helping our partner flourish. If we are encouraging to ourselves in our thought processes, then we will be encouraging to our lovers. We will be gentle and patient and full of sexual self-control with our partner. Yes, I just applied the fruits of the Spirit to sexual intimacy because it works. (laughs) It's a good test for how you are showing up. Does your sex life reflect the fruits of the Spirit? Are you, are you applying the fruits of the Spirit as a fruit test to your sex life? Are you even aspiring to live up to it? These are things to think about, okay? We, as we live imperfectly on this continuum of justice, as we imperfectly aspire to grow and mature and evolve. The second norm of just sex is free consent. Again, this is a minimum bottom-of-the-line requirement. As Farley explained in our last episode, we are obligated to respect a person's autonomy and relationality. Free consent, therefore, and I quote, safeguards the autonomy of persons as transcendent and free. Rape, violence, or any harmful use of power are never justified, end quote. She also explains that that Seduction and manipulation of people who have limited capacity for choice because of immaturity, special dependency, or loss of ordinary power are ruled out. The requirement of free consent, then, opposes sexual harassment, pedophilia, and other instances of disrespect for a person's capacity for and right to freedom of choice. End quote. Notice that Farley said it was unjust to seduce and manipulate people who have limited capacity for free choice because of immaturity, special dependency, and loss of ordinary power. This is so important. To be in a healthy, ethical sexual relationship with someone, there has to be equal power dynamics where someone's capacity for choice is completely and totally free. 
derived from this norm of free consent is the requirement, and I quote, for truth-telling, promise-keeping, and respect for privacy, end quote. When we lie or break our promises, we are violating limits and hindering the freedom of choice of the other person. Farley states, deception and betrayal are ultimately coercive. If I lie to you when it comes to communicating my intentions and desires, and you act on the basis of what I have told you, I have limited your options, and hence, in an an important sense, I coerced you. Similarly, if I make a promise to you with no intention of keeping that promise, and you make a decision on the basis of that promise, I have deceived, coerced, and betrayed you. End quote. I know Farley's words seem a bit strong, but think about it. So much heartbreak and pain come from people not being fully honest and not keeping true to their commitments. Farley explains that privacy is also personal. When it comes to sex, privacy can mean when our lovers say, do not touch. (laughs) Simple enough, right? But when we respect and affirm someone's privacy, we are respecting their freedom of choice. The third norm in Farley's Seven Norms of Just Sexual Ethics, which will be the last norm we'll go through today, is mutuality. Mutuality. What does Farley mean by mutuality? Our white, patriarchal, dominant culture has traditionally viewed heterosexual sex as men being active penetrators and women passively receiving it. Farley describes this kind of sex as, and I quote, the woman as receptacle and the man as fulfiller, the woman as ground and the man as seed, end quote. Today, many of us see that as antiquated, but this active passive model for sex is still very much alive today. Farley explains that in today's society, and I quote, we have learned that male and female reproductive organs do not signal activity only for one and passivity only for the other, nor do universizable male and female character traits signal this. We can even appreciate all the ways in which, even at the physical level, men's bodies receive, encircle, embrace, and all the ways that women's bodies are active, giving, and penetrating. End quote. Farley explains that regardless of your sexual orientation, the key for us has become not activity and passivity, but active receptivity and receptive passivity. Each partner is active in the giving and receiving. Sex is not merely something you do to scratch an itch. Farley calls that itch a relief of libidinal tension. She says it may include this. Sex might usually does include this on some level, but she explains that human sexuality rather because it is fundamentally relational seeks ultimately what contemporary philosophers have called double reciprocal incarnation or a mutuality of sexual desire and embodied union. Sex can be satisfying and provide a wonderful physical release, but for sexual relationship to be fulfilling, it has to be rooted in mutuality. 
When a new sexual relationship begins, it's a bit dangerous to expect or assume total and utter self-disclosure. Farley wrote, we know that harm lurks unless sexual relations have matured into justifiable and mutual trust. And so this nuance fits onto that scale of justice. Basic bottom-of-the-line requirement for mutuality, both people are giving and receiving. No one is being used. But a higher up on the scale of justice is that utter and complete self-disclosure that happens when relationships mature into deep and abiding mutual trust. This kind of sex is rooted in what the writers of Genesis call as being naked and not ashamed. We should all aspire to this kind of intimacy with our partner. The kind of growing together as we grow and age, we continuously become naked and not ashamed, naked and proud, naked and funny, naked and thankful. Farley explains that patience, as well as trust and perhaps unconditional love are all needed for mutuality to become what we dream it can be, end quote. The evangelical purity culture tells women that they have to save themselves until marriage. This is not a message teen boys generally get. Young girls are given promise rings by their fathers as they weirdly commit to their dads to wait until marriage to have sex. The message of female sexual purity is also found outside of the church. We believe that sex is something that can be tarnished by past lovers and by past experiences. We believe in the toxic myth of baggage and we don't date people who might have baggage. And once women lose their virginity, we are told that we lose the very gift that we were created to give our husbands. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Your worth is is not tied to your sex life. Your worth is not tied to how well you keep or have kept your promises to your dad. Parents, I know this might be hard to hear, but the sex life of your adult children is none of your business. And so to manipulate them into making you a promise when they are teenagers is and to make them make a promise that they're supposed to keep as adults is unhealthy, toxic, and so destructive. Let me say this again, parents. The sex life of your adult children is none of your business. The best thing you can do as parents is to model a healthy sexual ethic for them in the way you talk about your spouse and other people and in the way you treat your spouse. You can offer advice or suggestions, but other than that, what they do is up to their own freedom of choice, a freedom of choice given to them by God. And so when we respect the concrete reality of our teens and adult children, we are respecting God and showing love in a healthy and life-giving way. Ladies, your sexuality does not belong to your husband or your wife. It belongs to you, and it is out of your freedom of choice that you can give it to your partner. Your worthiness, your value as a person, 
does not diminish because of the amount of partners you have had or the bad experiences you have endured. Please remember that people have bad experiences in marriage too. People have bad sexual experiences in marriage too. Our sex lives have ups and downs. This is a very healthy, normal part of being human. The goal is to mature with it, to grow and not just give our partners the bottom line, but to give ourselves and others the maximum amount of justice and love. The goal is to mature, to grow in our expression of the fruits of the Spirit, to grow in our our faith and our own understanding of our own concrete reality. Instead of tying our worth to the evangelical purity culture's standard, we need to come back to the imago Dei inside all of us. You are created in the image of God. Whether you are cisgendered, non-binary, he, she, or they, you are created in the image of God. You were created for the kind of sex where you can be naked and not ashamed, where you can be naked and laugh, naked and thankful, naked and proud. When we love ourselves and do no unjust harm, we are respecting, honoring, and affirming our concrete reality as created beings, as people created in the image of the divine. When we love other people as created in the image of God, we are respecting, honoring, and affirming the image of God in them. When many of us think of marriage, we often think of that passage in Ephesians where Paul wrote that men ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church and, I quote, gave himself up for her, and that wives ought to submit to their husbands. Although healthy sacrifice is present in all long-lasting relationships, whether sexual or not, I do not think we ought to take that passage literally. First off, we forget how rooted in gender Paul's words were. The idea that men should be sacrificial and love their wives in a sacrificial way was incredibly radical for Paul's time. In the Roman Empire, women were property. Today, women are not property. They are not treated as property. But in the Roman Empire, women were treated as property, not as lovers who you sacrifice for. In today's world, the evangelical culture often applies Paul's words to both men and women and encourages both men and women to sacrifice their lives for the other. But your relationship with your partner should not reflect the crucifixion of Christ. Think about it. Not everything should be a sacrifice. You should never have to sacrifice who you are, what you believe, and what you want out of a relationship. You might have to sacrifice some of your time, where you make dinner reservations, where some of your money goes if you want to buy a house together, but you should not have to die to yourself in order to be in a relationship. Your marriage should not reflect the crucifixion of Christ. Your relationship with your partner ought to reflect the abundant life as expressed through the fruits of the Spirit. Peace, joy, love, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. When we do no unjust harm, we respect and respect the freedom of choice and engage in mutuality. The fruits of the Spirit have the capacity to abound. This is what we should aspire to. This is what we should work towards, whether we are married or not. 
I know that today's episode was a lot to digest, but I am so grateful you were on this journey with me. I hope that I gave you a lot of food for thought and that you felt encouraged by what I shared today. Tune in next week for part three. Until next time, my name is Ashley Lynn Hanks, and you are listening to The Unwinding Podcast.